All right, welcome everyone. We're looking at Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Does everybody have some uh, a handout? We have some in the bag back here. If you don't. So, it's our breathing, our panting. Because <laughs> it's so hot. <laughs> Now, who doesn't agree with me in this? It's, <laughs> it's hot, but it's going to get hotter off, right? <laughs> <laughs> your, your wife's standing. Okay, it's going to get hotter. Here's a quiz. Okay, in 2, 1 through 4, Paul encourages the Philippians to strive for unity. True? True. True. Uh, to value others above ourselves means a total self-denial of our own needs. You know, I kind of said no to that. You know, Paul says, esteem others better than yourselves. He recognizes we're going to look out for our own well-being. We're not going to uh, uh, just totally disregard our own needs and stuff. But we should put those of others above ours is the idea here. Jesus Christ is truly human and truly God. True. 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 All right. Um, Christ's humiliation followed his exaltation. It's the opposite order, isn't it? Humiliation, death on the cross... And then exaltation, glorification. Okay? Number five, the Lord speaking to my Lord in Psalm 110.1 is the Father speaking to the Son. True, speaking to the Messiah, the Son. So, remember we said the all capital, L-O-R-D, is Yahweh in the Old Testament. And the Yahweh, so David says, the Yahweh says to my Lord, the Messiah, and we understand in the New Testament this is taken as, uh, you know, Jesus says, uh, um, how does, uh, you know, remember when he talks talks about the presence of God, how does he call him Lord? Why does he call him Lord? He's trying to work on that Psalm 110 verse 1 passage recognizing there's two lords there. There's Yahweh, God the Father, there's the Lord, the Messiah and the Father says to the Messiah, the Son sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, which is what's happening now. Uh, Number 6 the fact that every person will someday acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord suggest they will be saved. No, this is not universal salvation. This is just at the great white throne. All people will be forced to acknowledge, yes, uh, Jesus is Lord, even though it's not a salvific kind of thing. So we're looking at uh, chapter 2 here. We're in this section 127 through 230. 
which I called a call to sanctification or an exhortation to spiritual growth, to holiness. And Paul starts off there in 127 through 2.4 with the duties, what he calls the duties of Christian citizenship. And remember, he builds off that the concept that the Philippians are Roman citizens. And so he uses a word there, conduct yourselves. It's not the normal word for live as a Christian, but live as a citizen in a state. And it's, so he's playing off the idea that as Romans, the Philippians had a high standard they were, had to live up to. And as Christians, we have a high standard. We are to live as citizens of heaven, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter 4. And so he mentions various duties. He mentions, uh, don't have them listed there, but we talked about perseverance, steadfastness is necessary in the Christian life. Uh, we talked about suffering. It's been granted, Paul says, uh, for us, not only to believe on Christ, but to suffer. And so uh, this is something that's part of our spiritual growth, our sanctification is... We have to learn to endure some suffering. Some have a lot. Some don't have so much. Some have it early. Some have it late, you know. And so you may have not had much in your life so far, but it may come to you all of a sudden sometime. We have to be able to endure that for the sake of Christ because it's for our benefit, Paul tells us. And then he also mentions another duty is unity. Um, We need to be unified as we proclaim the gospel, as we share the gospel, unified for the cause of the gospel. And then uh, when he talked about that unity, he moves on to Christ as a model of Christian humility, 2, 5 through 11. That famous passage there, sometimes called the kenosis. Kenosis is a term that means emptying or humiliation. It's kind of a theological term that's used for that passage where Christ humbles himself, becomes a servant, dies on the cross, but then God exalts him to the right hand and so forth in 2, 5 through 11. And he uses that as an example for the Philippians to uh, humble themselves, and in due time, God will exalt us. Now we come to verses 12 through 18, an exhortation to Christian obedience. We're still dealing with this call to spiritual growth or sanctification, and Paul exhorts us now to obedience. Um it's, I say here the connection between the previous uh, section and the surrounding context is made clear by verse 8, which emphasized Christ's humility. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. As we noted before, Paul had previously exhorted the Philippians to humble-mindedness in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Paul's reference to the self-humbling of Christ in verse 8 is also described in that verse as an act of obedience. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. 
This idea of obedience is now picked up in verse 12 and becomes the main emphasis of verses 12 through 18. Just as Christ obeyed, the Philippian Christians are to obey. They are to do things without grumbling and discord. The result will be that their witness to the world is credible and powerful. Verses 12 through 18 can be divided into three sections. In verses 12 through 13, Paul gives a general exhortation and encouragement for the Philippians to lead obedient lives. In verses 14 through 16, Paul follows up with a more specific instruction to avoid dissension in the church. Finally, in verses 17 through 18, Paul concludes with an appeal about obedience, and he relates that to his own ministry. Let's look first of all at verses 12 through 13, what we might call the believer's work. Therefore, my dear friends, and we're talking about obedience here now, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the word therefore here links Paul's exhortation in the following verses with the example of Christ in verses 2, 6 through 11. Therefore, because of the example of Christ, as you have always obeyed, continue to. The main thought of verses 12 through 13 is the exhortation, continue to work out your own salvation. This is probably a more specific way of expressing the idea of obedience stated in the phrase, you have always obeyed. Paul's exhortation for the Philippians to work out their salvation might seem to contradict the apostles' frequent emphasis that salvation is not obtained by one's own works. Here he says, work out your salvation, but... If we've read much of the New Testament, we know there are many passages where he says we don't work for our salvation. Romans 4, 5, he says, the one who does not work, God saves the one who does not work. In Titus 2, 5, Paul says, God saves us, saved us not because of righteous things we had done. Also in 2, 13, the next verse, Paul says, it is God who works. So here we have a tension, a kind of a tension, a seeming, a paradox. A paradox is a seeming contradiction between divine sovereignty and what's called human responsibility. However, part of the solution to this dilemma is to note that in 2.12, Paul is exhorting the Philippians to work out the salvation that God is presently working in them. The initiative for our salvation comes from God alone. Our justification does not flow from our own righteous conduct, but, as Paul says in Romans 4, 5, God justifies the ungodly. Now part of the answer here when Paul says, continue to work out your salvation we have to understand exactly what Paul is talking about here when he says salvation. I say here, when we speak of the biblical concept of salvation, salvation is a term that covers many theological concepts 
and is not restricted only to justification. Justification is monergistic, but some aspects of salvation require our participation. Now, we don't, uh, most of the time when we talk about our salvation, we um, talk about God doing it. It's all of God, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Now, remember the word salvation, as it's used in Scripture, is the broad term. And it describes a lot of different aspects, a lot of different uh, parts of the salvation experience. And so uh, salvation can be used in the broad sense, or it can be used in a narrow sense. That, that is, we might ask somebody, are you saved? Well, we mean, um, we mean, have you been born again? Have you been regenerated? Um, that once a, a very famous Greek scholar, a fellow by the name of B.F. Westcott, a famous scholar, he was walking down the streets of London and a girl from the Salvation Army asked him, you know, uh, are you saved? And he says, well, what do you mean? Do you mean, have I been saved? Am I being saved? Or will I be saved? You know, we, talk, we talked about this before in this class, another place, that, you know, there's these three aspects. There's a past, there's a present, and a future. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will ultimately be saved. But sometimes we use the word saved just to refer to that one aspect, maybe just the past or just the present. Now on this chart here, I've got some of the aspects of salvation like regeneration, sanctification, election, redemption, justification, union with Christ, adoption, reconciliation, conversion, glorification. So as we look at most of these aspects... Most of these uh, are what are called monergistic. Monergistic. Have it there for you. So this comes from a couple of words, uh, which mean the, the Greek word for work, or force, and one. So we talk about monergism, we're talking about one force, one person is working. And so, many aspects of our salvation are monergistic. That is, we don't participate at all. For instance, election. God elects us from the foundation of the world. We don't have anything to do with that, we don't participate, we don't, so, you know, that's totally monergistic. Most everything on that chart is monergistic. Regeneration. God gives us a new nature, new life. That's monergistic. We don't, we receive it, but we're not part of it in that sense. So if I put up another chart here, I'll come back to this one. Um, Just 
You know, if we talk about salvation as we're united with Christ, uh, two of the main aspects are justification and sanctification. So justification, we're declared righteous the moment we're saved. We're declared righteous by God. That's clearly monergistic. God does it, he declares it. Some people use the word synergistic to describe sanctification because you and I participate in our sanctification. We have to obey. We have a part to play. Now, it's interesting about the term synergistic. Synergistic means with with another force. It usually means that there's a couple of forces working. So this can be a tricky word, synergistic. When we talk about the doctrine of sanctification, as we're going to see here, uh, we have a part to play. We have to obey God. We have to obey and and be obedient to God. We we participate in our sanctification. Some theologians don't like that term synergistic to apply to sanctification. Uh, The theology teacher where I taught uh, for many years, he didn't like that. If you've heard of R.C. Sproul, many of you know R.C. Sproul. Sproul loved it. He liked this word. So Sproul says sanctification is synergistic. But some people think that means uh, that's too much. It's too much, that's too much on our part. We're, that's saying I do too much. You see, it can be tricky. But we know it's not that we know. We know we have a part to play. So some people talk about our participation, and that's the language I'll use later. So let me go back. So if we look at these things, justification is monergistic. God does it. Even conversion. Conversion is repentance and faith. God gives us repentance and he gives us faith. We just respond. Almost everything on here, adoption, redemption, union with Christ, election, regeneration, justification, reconciliation, and glorification. They're all monergistic. (laughs) The only thing that's not quite is how do you describe sanctification? Because in sanctification, we have a part to play. Some people use the term, we participate. We have a participation. So I'm saying here, when we speak of the concept of salvation, is a term that covers many theological concepts. It's not restricted only to justification. Justification is monergistic, But some aspects of salvation require our participation, particularly sanctification. Sometimes we use the word salvation to include God's redemptive work in its totality, while other times it can refer to just one aspect. Just like we say, we say, are you saved? We mean we're thinking about that initial aspect. We're not asking if I say, are you saved? Have you been glorified yet? But glorification is part of salvation, (laughs) So if you say to me, Bill Combs, have you been saved? I could say, not completely. And you would, people would go, wow, they say, what do you mean by that, not completely? <laughs> well, I haven't been glorified yet. There's still a future aspect of salvation to come, you know. But it'd be confusing if I said, not completely. But that's true. I haven't been completely. So because salvation in its entire scope necessary includes the manifestation of righteousness or holiness in our lives, it follows that our activity is essential to the process of salvation. So, uh, as I say, 
Sanctification requires our participation. Some people would say that's synergistic. Some people don't like that term. Some theologians, they debate this back and forth about whether to use that term or not. Is it too tricky? Um, But if we look at, say, sanctification, there are three aspects to sanctification. There's a past, a present, and a future. The past aspect was instantaneous with regeneration. We were set apart from sin. The power of sin was broken. That was instantaneous, monergistic. God did it. So when we were regenerated, we were justified, we were also sanctified, that is, in this first instance. But now we're being progressively sanctified. So most of the time, when books and authors talk about sanctification, they're usually talking about this aspect, the middle. That's what's going on now. And that requires our obedience. That's not instantaneous. That happens over time. But the future sanctification, what we call glorification, that's monergistic too, because God will do it. You know, at the rapture, or when it comes back, that we'll have been, you know, glorified and so forth. <coughs> so, um, uh, Paul says, remember in Ephesians uh, 2 9, 2 8 and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So there he's, that's kind of like monergistic. It's not of yourselves. It's not by works. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we were created to do good works. That's part of our sanctification. Um, similarly, in uh, Ephesians 2, I mean in, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, both the human and divine elements are stressed. He says in verse 12, continue to work out your salvation. He's not saying continue to work out your justification. Don't work out your uh, election. (laughs) Don't work out your adoption. No, those are all past. Those are monergistic. So when he says work out your salvation... There is using salvation in the sense of sanctification. That's what we're working out. We're working out our spiritual growth, our sanctification. So in verses 12 and verse 13, the human and divine are stressed because in verse 13 he'll say, it's God that works in you. On the one hand, he says, you work. He'll say in verse 13, it's God who works in you. So this this passage puts it very bluntly. Uh, you know, we can't we can't tone down the emphasis on our conscious activity, our participation. We participate in our salvation in the sense of our sanctification. It requires our active obedience. So there have been some who have denied this. They just say, no, there's no activity on your part. It's called quietism. You just sit there in your chair and just, you know, and just wait. And God will do it. Don't, don't, don't make any effort. Don't do anything. Just let go and let God, that kind of philosophy, you know, sort of thing. No. 
There's all kinds of commands that we've seen in this this epistle alone. Do this, do that, do this. We're commanded to do certain things. Our obedience is commanded, and we must do that if we're going to grow spiritually, if we're going to work out our salvation. And then he says, with fear and trembling here, Work out your work, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Say it's best understood as it's commonly found in the Old Testament, where passages where people were in awe of God. They had this holy fear. With the idea of having a disposition of obedience to God in light of our own weakness. We cannot live out the gospel casually or lightly, is what Paul (coughs) seems to be saying here. It's not just a casual thing. It's with fear and trembling. Especially in the light of the example of Christ that we just saw previously in verses 6 through 11. We, we have to live as those who are standing in the awe, in awe of God and the fear of God. So it, this, this phrase, fear and trembling, probably has a similar idea to what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10. He's warning them in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says, he gives the example of the Israelites. Look what happened to the Israelites. They had all these privileges. They were baptized into Moses and in the sea. And what happened to them in the desert? They followed idolatry, and they all died in the desert. He says there, take heed lest you fall. It's a warning. And Paul is sort of warning us here. We do this not lightly. We don't take this obedience lightly. We take it because we stand in awe and fear of God himself. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. Paul says that though we have a part to play in our progressive sanctification, the enablement to carry out that our sanctification is furnished by God himself who produces in us both the desire to live righteously, that is, the will, and the effective energy to act. It's God who works in you to will. He gives you the desire. And to act, He gives us the energy. Our activity in working out our own salvation is possible only because of divine grace. So God's influence, Paul says, extends both to the act itself and to our very wills. Uh, John Calvin says there are, there are in any action two principal parts, the will and the effective power. Both of these Paul ascribes to God. What more remains for us to glory in? Nothing. The point then of verse 12 and 13 is that while sanctification requires conscience, effort, and concentration... Our activity takes place not in a legalistic spirit with a view to gaining God's favor, but rather in a spirit of humility and thanksgiving, recognizing that without God we can do nothing. And so he alone deserves the glory. John Murray, famous theologian, described it this way. God's working in us is not suspended because we work nor are working suspended because God works. Neither is the relationship strictly one of cooperation. So you can see he wouldn't have liked that word synergism. 
R.C. Sproul thinks it's fine, but see, that cooperation sounds like synergism. Too much man's part there. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we do ours, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produced the required result. God works and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God working in us. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and working. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. But we can't get ourselves here. We have to work. We have to be obedient. And we recognize we depend upon God's grace for this, but we just can't sit in our chairs and hope it's going to happen. It takes effort on our part, which means studying the Bible, understanding Scripture, being obedient, doing what God says. It takes our activity. Well, then uh, the next section here, uh, this exhortation to obedience, involves uh, our conduct and how we look and act. God wants us to be you know, blameless children. He wants our character to be what it should be, verses 14 through 16. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Well, there you go. That's a good one. (laughs) Chew on that one for a while, huh? (laughs) Do everything without grumbling or arguing. I'm waiting. Okay. (laughs) I want to hear what he has to say about this. There's nothing more to say. I didn't hear. I don't see any exceptions to that. Do you? You see some exception? Well, you don't realize how hard a week I had. You know, you don't realize what my wife did. You know, you don't realize what my husband did. You don't realize what my children. You know what my boss did. The call to unity, which we first was first declared in one twenty-seven, stand firm in the one spirit and then expanded in 2, 1 through 4, being like-minded, being one in spirit and of one mind, reappears here. As the Philippians obey Paul's exhortation in verse 12 to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, it should be done without grumbling and arguing, that is, without dissension within the church. It's obvious that grumbling and arguing are sins that always produce disunity in our church, in our local church. And that ultimately weakens the outreach we have in the community. Over the years I taught the seminary, I was in many churches. And sometimes you go into a church, you don't know this church, you walk in there to preach on Sunday, and you talk about a cold. (laughs) And, you, you know, there's like, you know, it's just terrible because everybody's mad at each other, you know. And there's no chance that this church is going to reach the community or anything like that. They're they're having internal battles, you know, one with another. You can't really fulfill the mission if that's the case. 
Verse 15. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among among them like stars in the sky. Paul now explains that the purpose of the exhortation in verse 14 to do everything without grumbling and arguing is so that the Philippians might become blameless and pure. To this, to this is added a further description. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. We become children of God when we are regenerated, born into God's family. We have a new nature, a new disposition that is oriented toward God and holiness. But holiness needs to increase, to grow. And we, as we progress in our sanctification, our goal is to become children of God without fault, particularly as viewed by the world around us. So Paul says if we faithfully obey the will of God, the commands of God contained in Scripture, he says our lives will be free from anything blameworthy. We'll also, as he says here, be pure, that is devoid of any foreign anything foreign, anything improper in our hearts. If we progress in holiness, then our nature as God's children will be more evident. There won't be any flaws. We'll be without fault, as he says here, to disfigure our witness to those around us. The apostle is mindful of the Philippians' location within a corrupt Roman society. You and I also increasingly live in the moral blackness of a warped and crooked generation. If our sanctification holiness is what it should be, then we will stand out as the children of God like stars in the sky at midnight. So we know that believers, you and I, are possessors of Christ. Remember Christ in John 8.12 calls himself, I am the light of the world. Uh, And because we are possessors of Christ, we possess that light. We have life-giving light to give. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. So on the one hand, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but you have me, so you are the light of the world. So there's a sense in which we're always shining. We're always, Christ is in us. There's always evidence there. But the challenge is to live our lives in a way that's unhindered so we don't hinder that light. So it won't be darkened. Paul says uh, in Ephesians 5.8, For you were once darkness, but now your light in the Lord. Live as children of light. But remember how this section started off in verse 14. Paul says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. So if grumbling and arguing is evident in our lives, you can imagine the effect it's going to have on those around us to whom are, who are looking at us. We're supposed to be light bearers, and they see our conduct as grumbling and arguing, dissension. We're not going to be able to shine like the stars in the sky. We're not going to be able to give the gospel as we should to a warped and crooked generation. Verse 16, As you hold firmly to the word of life, 
And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run nor labor in vain. Paul now clarifies how the Philippians can fulfill their task of behaving as God's children in the world, as those light bearers of the gospel. We do so by holding firm to the word of life, which means the word that brings life. This is the obedience that Paul has been stressing in this section, obedience to the word of God, the word of life. Paul consistently lived his life in light of the approaching day of Christ. For on that occasion, the final account of his stewardship as evidence in the lives of his converts would be decided. The day of Christ is the time when Christ will return for his church and then believers will have their work inspected and rewarded. And so if the Philippians continue on in their steadfastness and their obedience, that will be a, a cause for Paul to rejoice, to boast on that day. That'll demonstrate that his efforts were not in vain. They were not empty, but they were fruitful. Well, then finally here, we see Paul concludes here with this personal appeal. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. As sort of proof that Paul is had not run in vain, he points to the actual facts of the ministry, his ministry among the Philippians. Paul acknowledges that his apostolic efforts and sufferings could lead to martyrdom, poured out like a drink offering. He earlier told the Corinthians, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. And he says, I face death every day. Paul was more than willing to spend and be expended for the sake of his converts. So I will be gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. The prospect of standing before Christ reminded Paul that it might be soon. By using the vivid illustration of a drink offering, he explained that even though he was presently in a dangerous situation that could lead to a martyr's death, It was the climax of his ministry and a cause for rejoicing. Remember both Jewish, the Jewish religion, the Greek religion, practiced drink offerings. You maybe have a sacrifice on the altar and an additional offering is you pour some wine, you pour a drink offering on top of that. It's an additional offering. And Paul is using that illustration here. So I, you know, I have sacrificed and labored for you, but even if I have to give everything, if I'm just poured out completely like a drink offering, everything is gone. I'm just totally given up. Then that's fine. It's fine. He's thinking, Paul is thinking of all these ministries he's performed for them, he's sacrificed for them. But it would be fine if he asked to add his life. If he has to be a martyr for them, Paul says that's good. Paul was not embittered, but rejoicing in his present labors and sufferings. He was willing not only to endure his present sufferings, but also to lay down his life. So what made Paul rejoice was the prospect of having his ministry among the Philippians be successful. And that filled him with joy. Remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Think about that. What will be important then? You know, you can see what Paul's thinking is. Even if I have to, I've worked off, worked all this stuff. I've given my life for you, and I might have to just give, be martyred. But it'll be worth it when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So we have to think about that, don't we? It's good to think about that verse. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day, and what will be important then? Verse 18, So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Like the Philippians, likewise the Philippians, should display the same attitude as Paul. They must not wring their hands nor complain about their own trials and Paul's. They look, they've got to learn to find joy as they work out their salvation. They've got to learn to have the same kind of attitudes Paul had. The man who suffered so much and gave up so much, yet he could rejoice in all that because of what it's accomplishing for the cause of Christ. So we have to not let our trials, not let our sufferings overwhelm us. We have to rejoice in what's really important in life. And for the Christian, that's a totally different perspective than the world around us. Well, we come then to um, 2.19 through 30. We'll just deal with the Timothy section here. Resumption of Paul's Missionary Report, 2.19 through 30. As the title to this section states, Paul is resuming the missionary report of 112 through 26. The primary purpose of these verses is to give information regarding Paul's plans. In effect, what's next? And what's next has to do with the coming visits to Philippi by Timothy, verses 19 through 23, and hopefully Paul himself, verse 24. But right away... Paul will be sending Epaphroditus back to them with this letter. Remember, we talked about that before, but in chapter 4 he'll refer to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had been sent from Philippi to minister to Paul, brought him a gift from the Philippians. And there we learn, we're going to learn this next section, that he got sick and almost died. And Paul's going to send him back with the letter. But Paul has another purpose for this section in that it supports 127 through 218 how Christians should conduct themselves by giving examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus of the kind of Christian conduct Paul had urged on the Philippians so he's given the example of Christ he's urged this kind of conduct and now he's going to give a couple of examples this is going to this is going to give give, give news about his plans but it's also very good because He can point to an example of the kind of Christian conduct he'd like to see among the Philippians. So first of all, we see Timothy here, 219 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Because of his imprisonment, Paul cannot return to Philippi for the present. He nevertheless expects to send Timothy to them soon, not immediately, but as soon as he 
has a clearer view of his affairs. We'll learn that in verse 23. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. So he qualifies the soon here a little later in verse 23. Paul's plans to send Timothy are tempered by the phrase, in the Lord, Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the one in whom our expectations and hopes are dependent and by whom they are determined. So Paul's making his plans, but he says, you know, it's in the Lord's hands here. This is very similar, remember, to what James tells us. When you say today or tomorrow we'll go to this city and spend a year, carry on business, make money, why do you even, you don't even know what will happen. What's your life? You're a myth that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. That's what Paul is doing here. Paul's stated purpose for sending Timothy is that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. As we learn later in the next section, Epaphroditus will be coming back to Philippi with the letter. Paul hopes the letter will solve some of the issues in the Philippian church. Paul covered in 127 through 218 that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Make my joy complete by being like-minded in humility. Value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Then when Timothy comes, hopefully, he can report back to Paul news about the Philippians so that Paul may be cheered. That is, Paul would be encouraged and refreshed by news that the Philippians, having gotten the letter, have taken it seriously, taken the admonition seriously, and they're obeying it. So when Timothy comes, he can report back to Paul some very good news, that Paul can be cheered by this news. Verse 20. I have no one else like him, like Timothy, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Paul now gives his first reason for sending Timothy to the Philippians. The words like him are actually one word in Greek that might be kind of literally translated equal in soul. Paul has no one with him in Rome and available to send to Philippi who is such a kindred spirit, who genuinely cares about the things that affect them. The purpose of this glowing description of Timothy is not to introduce him to the Philippians, since Timothy was already well known to them. He had been with Paul at the founding of the church, remember in Acts chapter 16. But Timothy is the one person, most like the the apostle Paul himself, who shares the same concerns as the apostle. And so this description could possibly prevent a disappointment. They want Paul to come. They're looking for Paul to come. And Paul says, listen, I'm sending a man, a kindred spirit. This man cares for you just like I do. So there shouldn't be any disappointment. Verse 21. For everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. This verse provides the basis for the previous statement that Paul has no one like Timothy among those who are with him in Rome who might have been sent to Philippi. 
The reason Paul has no one like Timothy who will be concerned for the welfare of the Philippians is that all the believers, all others, everyone, were concerned about their own affairs rather than the cause of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. But who are these others Paul is talking about? Everyone who looks out for their own interest. As I stated, the natural reading of the text would assume that these others, everyone, are people in Rome that Paul might have sent to Philippi. But of course, this kind of indictment by the impossible seems too sweeping and severe. Clearly, he cannot mean this in an absolute sense. Does he really mean that everyone in Rome is a jerk except Timothy? At the very least, you have to exclude Epaphroditus. Because he's going to send Epaphroditus in a moment. What about Luke? Luke is there. Well, maybe Luke is out on some mission. Maybe some others are out, you know. I say here, since Paul always displays a high regard for those who travel with him, and that in 421 he'll later say, he sends greetings from the brothers and sisters who are with me. It does not seem possible that the others who seek after their own interest are those other co-workers whom Paul might have sent to Philippi. More likely, Paul is contrasting Timothy's character and some other people who came to mind as Paul was dictating. These people are condemned because they lack the two essential qualities of Timothy in verse 20. Like-minded with Paul, which expresses itself in genuine concern for others. This is probably going back to these people that Paul talked about in chapter 1. Remember? It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Remember those people? Chapter 1. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Suppose they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in my chains. There's unfortunately some believers in Rome who are preaching Christ, but they're not doing it for the right motive as we studied back there. And so maybe that's the kind of people that Paul is thinking about here. Verse 22. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with the father he has served me in the work of the gospel. The but links this statement about Timothy with verse 20. After contrasting Timothy with others who were concerned about their own interest in verse 21, Paul now gives his second Paul gives his second reason for the decision to send Timothy to the Philippians, namely his proven character, which they had known about from the time of the church's founding. The evidence of Timothy's proven character was his ongoing commitment to the advance of the gospel and the close personal relationship with Paul. As we know, he and Paul and Timothy had this father-son relationship. They had served Christ together for the furtherance of the gospel, beginning with Paul's second missionary journey. Remember, he picks him up there in Acts chapter 15 in Lystra. And so this has been going on for 10 years. Timothy's been this faithful companion of Paul, very close associate. And remember, Paul will write a couple of letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He'll write them to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. He's sort of Paul's apostolic representative that he's left behind to uh, manage that immense work there in Ephesus. Verse 23, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Paul now concludes, therefore, his commendation of Timothy by returning to the language of verse 19. Now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, indicating again 
this hope of sending Timothy to the Philippians soon. Paul now qualifies the soon of verse 19 by explaining that what he means by that is he will send Timothy as soon as he knows how things will go, turn out for him in his court case. However, Timothy will not be the person bringing this letter because Paul wants to keep Timothy with him until he has more definite information about the outcome of his case. The implication of Paul's language here seems to be that Paul thinks that there's a good chance that there's soon going to be some legal decision regarding his case. And this letter sent by Epaphroditus will alert the Philippians that Timothy is shortly going to be coming because I think my case is coming to an end here and alert them to the coming uh, of Timothy. Uh, And they will know that when Timothy comes, he'll be able to bring news about what happens, what's happened to Paul, what his case, what his outcome will be. Uh, But he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Remember? (laughs) He told us that back in chapter... uh, 127. Whatever happens, whether I come or not, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. That whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, you're still conducting yourselves as people who are worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul adds that a visit from Timothy was not intended to be a substitute for him. And I am confident in the Lord Jesus that I myself will come soon. So he's pretty confident. Uh, Timothy's not a substitute. I'm coming as soon as I get at liberty. Confident that he will be there as soon as he's at liberty. But the confidence is in the Lord again. I'm confident in the Lord. I'm trusting the Lord in this. Meaning that he's confident if that is what the Lord wills to happen. So Paul, you know, Paul has talked about coming to Philippi before. As I said in 127, he says... uh, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel that whether I come and see you or whether I remain, whether I'm absent, you'll conduct yourself. Here he says, I'm pretty confident I'm coming. He hopes to come, but he says it's in the Lord. I, you know, that God has control of these things, and I'm hoping and praying that that will be the case. Let's, let's bow and have a closing word of prayer. Father, thank you for... Uh, the words of the Apostle Paul to us about our need to work out our own salvation, to work out our sanctification as you work in us. We realize that both the will to do it and the power to do it comes from the Holy Spirit energized in us, and we are dependent upon you and your grace in our lives. Give us the kind of obedient hearts that we should have that we can live our lives without grumbling, without complaining all the time, so that our testimony for the Lord will be one that shines, that gives forth the light, that others will be able, will not be turned away from us, our lives, what we have to say, that we can point others in the direction of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Apostle Paul did. Thank you for our time together, we pray in Christ's name.